Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Speaking of Resilience podcast. I'm Kate Madigan with the Michigan Climate Action Network. This episode was recorded right before Governor Whitmer announced and signed her Climate Executive Directive, which sets a goal for Michigan to be carbon neutral by 2050 and to cut our climate emissions by 28% within five years. These goals are for the whole state of Michigan, economy-wide, meaning our electricity generation, our transportation sector, and the heating of our buildings and the cooling of our buildings must all be carbon neutral. I think of that as three pieces of a pie. Achieving these goals and doing it equitably is possible and is necessary if we are to avoid the worst impacts of climate change, but it is also going to be a heavy lift. In today's episode, we're going to talk about how to rapidly reduce the carbon footprint of our buildings and focusing on Grand Rapids, which has been leading a lot of this work in Michigan. Our guest today is Jillian Gem, the program manager for the U.S. Green Building Council of West Michigan. We talk about how green buildings not only make a huge impact on reducing climate pollution, but also save money and can enormously improve people's quality of life. And we talk about specific programs Jillian works on, like the Michigan Battle of the Buildings, the Bilingual Energy Assistance Program, and Grand Rapids Zero Cities Project. Here's my interview with Jillian Gem. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Jillian. Thank you, Kate, for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So to start us off, tell us about the U.S. Green Building Council and what you are working on right now. Well, the U.S. Green Building Council of West Michigan is trying to transform the way that buildings and communities are designed, built, and operated in a way to make us more resilient and vibrant for the future. Um, you may know us more from our particular programs, right? Mm -hmm. Our Michigan Battle of the Buildings, um, the 2030 District. My, my favorite is the Energy Assistance Program. Um, we promote green buildings uh, like ZNE, LEED, WELL, Passive House, LEED, of course. Um, overall, everything we're trying to do is to enable building owners through our various programs and sometimes just one-on-one -on -one, to achieve carbon drawdown in a way that is prosperous for them as a business and for us as a community. Okay, great. And I saw on your website that since 2014, the U.S. Green Building Council of West Michigan has reduced energy use by 62%. That's kind of amazing. How have you done that? That was, um, that's through mostly the, the building owners, right? We're just a nonprofit. We don't, we don't do anything really. But the, I mean, we do, you know what I mean, Kate. Um, yeah, you are, you're pushing this forward, but you're giving a lot of credit to the building owners who have, who have implemented the, the things that you're working to get implemented. Exactly. And the Michigan Battle of the Buildings competition is just a friendly competition, right? Um, it's all carrots, no sticks, recognition, praise, awards. Um, but the building owners, uh, year over year, it's grown to about 230 million square feet, and they've uh, reduced... Um, that 62% that you speak about, which means it's 14 plus, more than $14 million staying in the local economy. And it's uh, 37,000 metric tons of CO2 saved off of our grid. And that is just from a friendly competition alone. And um, that's just from energy efficiency. And it just shows that when you entice folks to participate in a way that they um, find rewarding that you can do so many amazing things. Yeah. Wow. 
And you talk about, you mentioned how many metric tons, how much was it? 37? Yes. Um, yeah, it is. And wow. that is just from the energy assistance, pro- excuse me, it's just from the Michigan Battle of the Buildings. Um, the energy assistance program and the Grand Rapids 2030 district themselves have their own metrics as well. The energy assistance program is 288,000 square feet of small businesses, um, small businesses, nonprofits, houses of worship, affordable multifamily, and educational institutions. And we provide customized audits for them so that they can make informed decisions about how they can improve on their energy efficiency. And that has been an amazing amount. I think I have the numbers here real quick. Um, between 89000 and $134,000 um, have been saved through their um, energy audits in the local programs, which makes it difficult because these areas usually have been left out of energy efficiency programs before, but they are really taking to it. And it's also bilingual. So you can have it in Spanish or in English. And if you're a... Um, organization that needs a different language will find an interpreter for you. Wow. That's amazing work. And then when we talk about climate solutions, you know, energy use in buildings is a huge, huge piece of this. Often we talk about, you know, um, reducing climate emissions from coal-fired power plants and electricity or transportation sources. Um, not enough, I don't think, is paid attention to how much we need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions from buildings, which is the work that you're focused on. But in the U.S., buildings account for about a third of um, our total greenhouse gas emissions, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so climate is definitely a huge motivator for this work. But then you also mentioned the economic benefits. What are, what are some of the, are those the main benefits from, from doing this work to make buildings more efficient to green buildings? I love this question. So, so other than climate change, what are other motivators for decarbonizing buildings? Yes. Right? Yes. Um, that, that's a great question. Because, see, the thing is, Kate, that, that even if climate change wasn't happening, um, even if our forests were not burning, even if our ice caps were not melting, even if our rains were coming, decarbonizing buildings still is a smart decision. And we can usely, loosely define decarbonizing buildings as phasing out that which causes CO2 emissions, right? That seems like a reasonable Mm -hmm. um, definition of it. And so you can do this through, you know, ZNE or ZNC ready buildings or even operations, which is better than design. You can do this through um, distributed renewable energy generation. You can do this through procurements and purchasing racks and carbon offsets. You can do this through retrofitting or aging building stock. And see, the tangential and arguably equal benefits to these metrics can be found other than fighting climate change. Um, For example, national security and energy independence. You um, you have to update your archaic infrastructure with new technology anyway. It's like climate change aside, that's just smart business planning, right? Right. And then you have creating yourself a resilient economy because of the first three things I talked about. Um, racial and socioeconomic justice is huge. And um, health and prosperity for our families as well. And you can be, I love this, I love being able to talk about decarbonizing buildings without ever using the word climate change. Because the benefits of doing the things I just talked about 
and the benefits of doing climate change work are, are ten, like right linear side next to each other. And you can be achieving all these metrics without having to speak about one or the other. Um, I can talk more about that if you'd like, but. That was I, a great answer. Yeah. I, yeah. And you raised so many, um, I was thinking about the economic benefits and the savings, but you raised so many others that are really important. And I want to talk more about the, um, the socioeconomic and racial justice that you talked about. I know that that's a big part of, um, you know, the, the, was it the zero cities project that you're working on with the city of Grand Rapids? Can you mm -hmm. talk about, um, the racial and socioeconomic justice as part of that and the equity and other work where that's how that's really lifted up and how you're able to focus on, on equity as part of this. For sure. Um, no, Kate, this is a, this is a, a piece that really makes my, I've been calling it making my heart nauseous because you, to align with these sorts of um, injustices, you need to be f fully aware of what, what we're doing with our built environment when we're simply not updating our, our housing stock, for example. And when you don't update your housing stock, you're actually leaving people behind. And from our historical racism that we have in the United States, it's evident that it's a racial and equity issue of those who we're leaving an aging housing stock. Um, for example, are, are you familiar with energy burden? Why don't you explain it for us? Sure. Um, so our low-income communities pay proportionally more of their income on energy than their counterparts um, of different income brackets, and that's called energy burden. But energy poverty is when households can't afford um, to buy adequate amounts of energy to meet livable needs. Um, you've, we've all heard stories like, oh, I had to choose between keeping food on the table or heating my house. Um, we had a huddle around the oven. And while that's great, uh, like, um, like pull yourself up by your bootstrap story, it's, it's really unacceptable that we should let people be living this way, right? And um, there's a, a statistic that caught me, Kate. It said um, that California's number one reason for payday loans is utility bills. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Mm -mm. It's, it, it's alarming. And see, I think that really puts into perspective that energy is a need and it's not a luxury. And it's, mm -hmm. it's bigger than just, um, oh, I'm going to keep my house at a 63 instead of a cozy 74. It's if people are making really life or death um, decisions here, right? Mm -hmm. And but how you can connect this energy poverty to building stock is that, you know, when we talk about energy code, speak, like speaking about building a building to energy code, that's, that's honestly nothing to brag about because that's the legally worst building you can build. And mm -hmm. we're underperforming everywhere, especially our housing stock. And that's making people sick. And the US EIA, Energy Information Agency, Association maybe? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know what I mean. You can I do. Be, you know, I do. Never, never know what they are. But the USEIA has said that the, on average, a low-income house is 27% uh, higher in its EUI, which is energy use intensity, than uh, its high-income households. And I'm telling you, in Battle of the Buildings, people win on 27% reductions. That's a huge amount. And mm -hmm. so EUI is energy use intensity, energy over square feet, right? And so if you have the same square feet, let's, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with 
the Grand Rapids area, but East Grand Rapids is a higher income bracket. And let's say um, Baxter over here um, is a lower income bracket and they're the same zip code. And they have amazingly different health outcomes because they're the same zip code, but as the, the income ratios are different. But also not only do they have different health outcomes, the like say like 800 square feet apartment, right? Um, they'll be paying more if you're in low income, you'll be paying more per square foot because you have to buy more energy to get it to the same conditions as, as a house that is in a higher income neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And so that affects you with your money. But so I think it's ACEEE. Yeah, the ACEEE has reported that if, the, if you brought low income housing up to average, I mean, not even superb, just average, mm-hmm. you can eliminate 35% of um, energy burden, low-income houses. And so if you can eliminate that just by bringing it to average, imagine what you can do with bringing it above code. And that's just with poverty. But if you talk about health, that's that's mind-blowing. Because, okay, so you think about uh, like a building envelope, it's leaky, so you have to put a lot of money into the energy that you're buying in order to keep it comfortable but it's just like going straight out as if you had a window open because you have a poor building envelope and your roof is leaking and you have moisture problems. And so, sorry, I'm getting really excited because this is- This is good. We like excited, yeah. Okay, well, here I go, okay. <laughs> um, but so if you have a, a poorly built building that has not been kept up, you're, you're risking folks who are living in there to mold issues and mildew because of moisture. And then that is asthma triggers and you have poor indoor air quality and thermal related illnesses are huge. There was a study on Lawrence Berkeley labs um, done in South California, but this can be applicable relatively speaking throughout the whole nation that they did a a study with um, 60,000 homes on their um, natural gas combustion stoves inside. And get this Kate, half of them, the, the indoor air quality half of them were had levels of pollution inside the home that were higher than allowable air levels outside of the home. Wow. Right. And so when you decarbonize, when you take out that fossil fuel from inside a housing stock, for example, you're reducing the up close and personal exposure risk um, for chemicals like carbon monoxide and NOx and, and formaldehyde, right? And that's just from a health perspective alone. You know, you've got to update your technologies. You don't have to talk about climate change. And that's a lot of why Berkeley was the first city to outlaw um, gas combustion in their new buildings, right? On January 1st, 2020, they came out with a bang, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of what they were citing, sure, was because of climate change and also was because it's just the right thing to do for somebody's health. And there was a... So, so if we talk about thermal bridging now, which is like the thermal related illnesses, there was a, um, a paper written by Dr. Tony Reams from U of M and it, it broke my heart because he had, he had a reference in another study talking about hypothermia in poorly created houses, well, poorly updated houses because they were created well, but we just haven't been able to like, keep our building stock updated. So, it goes that in the study that he it was referencing, he was referencing two studies, that elderly patients admitted to intensive care units had worse cases and had a higher frequency of death when these folks were found inside the home. 
versus outdoors. And uh, if I remember it correctly, it goes to say that half of hypothermia-related deaths occur indoors, period. And that when the death rates are particularly high amongst Blacks who are above 80. And so this shows that those who are stuck in poor quality homes, that usually ends up creating their sicknesses that, that lead to their despair. Yeah. It's, it's just not right, right, Kate? No. Yeah. And so the, yeah, the cost, the energy burden on low income people and families is, is disproportionate. And also, you know, this is a quality of life issue. This is a life and death issue in a lot of cases. So what is being done and what programs and what work do you do to help? So especially in, in low income communities, there can be more of an investment and help to bring up the the, um, you know, insulation and energy efficiency of these buildings and, and address all of these problems. For sure. I mean, this, what I just spoke about is for residential and also this, but the same could be said for commercial, right? Because multifamily is a special hybrid between residential and commercial, right? Yeah. And, um, there's been studies that shown that if you have a green building, and if uh, you, sh- you are transparent about its benefits, about its reduced utility costs, about its in- increased um, IAQ, indoor air quality, um, and you know, the aesthetics, everything else that comes with it, people are willing to pay a premium because net-wise, it's less for them, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when you factor in everything else about it. So this was in our, um, the, the business case for green buildings. There was a, um, a resource that we have on our website and that was specifically targeting developers who are trying to figure out how to build green and why it makes the business case, right? And so we can talk to people a lot through their wallet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because we mostly focus on commercial and actually, ironically, the one thing that we don't touch is residential, even though the Zero Cities project does. And so I guess maybe I'm able to get my fix through helping in that way, right? Yeah, yes. yeah. Got it. Um, okay. Sorry. Give me a second here because we, we talked about, we covered a lot, (laughs) a lot of things. Um, and so have, tell me more about the zero cities project and the work that you're doing with, with Grand Rapids. For sure. Um, well, as you know, the zero cities project is housed in the city of Grand Rapids. Um, but it's a sister program created through Architecture 2030. And so the Zero Cities Project and the Grand Rapids 2030 District are both from um, Architecture 2030. Excuse me. Sorry, I'm, I'm healthy, I promise. <laughs> um, but it's a, it's a national program that is made to help cities find roadmaps. They're equitable and actionable um, strategy to achieve zero net carbon building sector by 2050. Um, And that is for both residential and commercial buildings. So even though we're sister programs and I don't directly work with the, I mean, I do directly work with, but I don't directly work for the Zero Cities Project. um, We're able to help them through uh, the commercial side because that which our commercial solutions are different than residential solutions. But UCC, um, Urban Core Collective, is an organization of six other organizations who sustain and um, enable each other to 
uh, stand up against racism. And um, they have increasingly seen how this work enables the work that they're trying to do to end racism in Grand Rapids. And a shout out to those folks because they are powerhouses. And uh, they, were you at, by chance, I know you're in Traverse City, so maybe not, but were you at the Grand Rapids um, Neighborhood Summit? Uh, I don't know if I was. I don't think I was. I think, I think it was at GVSU. It's always at GVSU now that I think about it. Um, but they, the UCC and the Zero Cities Project did a great presentation about how you can, just as I was talking about earlier, how you can enable climate change solutions without having to say it's for climate change, mm-hmm. right? So they did a cool spreadsheet. Um, you probably will have to ask them just in case they get this wrong, by the way. But it is a really cool spreadsheet of all the times that someone tries to come into your home to help you, whether that be for carbon monoxide testing from the fire department, um, whether that be somebody trying to you know, update your light bulbs from the utility company. You know, there's, there's a lot of different folks who come to try to help and who mean well. Um, but it's just exhausting giving your information over and over again and saying that this person will get back to you, but then the person who they just talked about said that they'd get back to you, and it's just a mess, right? So they're trying to streamline the process of when someone comes in to help you with your health and help you with your bills and help you with your environmental safety all at once, and so that you have maximized outcomes on all fronts. And you don't even have to mention climate change, but you're still helping people decarbonize their residents. Yeah, more efficiently. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And Grand Rapids has been doing so much and has been recognized as a leading sustainable city. Why do you think, like, what, what is it about Grand Rapids that has helped it, helped it become a leading city in this way? Okay, that's a good question. Um, you know, I don't think I have a defined answer on why it is. Um, I'm a transplant. That, that's a lie. I'm a returning native. <laughs> I, I grew up here. I left when I was in high school. And um, after I worked for the government of India and their uh, transportation department, I came back here um, because, you know, I heard that Grand Rapids had a glow up and I wanted to see what was up, right? And now that I've come back, it's, I really feel this, this culture of um, pride and of hope, right? And I think that since we, we come from all these diverse backgrounds, but we, we really believe that we can do what we put our mind to. And we've been able to bounce back from being um, like trapped in a Rust Belt city approach, right? And I think that's because of honestly the great philanthropies and the great organizations that are here. Um, like mm-hmm. MIMIAC, Local First, West Michigan Sustainable Business Forum, uh, C4, Michigan League of Conservation Voters, GHI, Latino Outdoors, Friends of Grand Rapids Parks. It, Honestly, though, okay, folks who are working on sustainability issues who don't even mention that it's sustainability issues or environmental issues, those folks are doing really great work too. And it's because we see the, the intersectionality mm-hmm. um, and we're not afraid to collaborate while keeping our autonomy at the same time. So I don't know if that gave you a superb answer because maybe I don't have the superb answer. No, I think that's a great answer. And I think I think about Mayor Hartwell yeah. um, and how he, you know, he was a Republican and the triple bottom line and how he brought sustainability, lifted it up to be a, a really nonpartisan, everybody benefits kind of a thing. And, and uh, Rosalind Bliss too, Mayor, yes. Mayor Rosalind Bliss has done amazing work uh, taking on his legacy. Yes, absolutely. Shout out to her too, for sure. Absolutely. 
And so what, tell us more about what brought you to this work. You were in India working on transportation and. Uh, yeah. You know, I, funny, Kate, I wanted to be a forester before this. Um, yeah, I had, I had started out trying to be a forester and the more that I looked at how to like save the trees, very Lorax style, right? <laughs> I saw that we, we can't really change the momentum, but maybe we can change the trajectory, right? And there's a quote for like from NBI that says that with the population increase we're expected to have, we can expect to add um, like four something trillion square feet um, of built environment, right? And that's equivalent to adding the full size of a New York City every 34 days for the next four years. And that stat alone just like blew me out of my seat. That's so again, the next 40 years, buildings, the landmass of New York City. Yep. Um, every 34 days for the next 40 years, we are adding a building stock equivalent to the size of New York City. Yeah. And sure, I can be a forester, I can try to save the trees, but you know, if I really want to save the trees, I should go work at what we're doing with our built environment. And then I realized that working with the built environment, it bridged two things. It bridged my desire to help the natural world and to really empower people. And I'm finding a lot of joy in that right now where I am. And so to, I guess to go back to the India thing real quick, um, I was here until high school. Um, then I was a foreign exchange student in Argentina. Um, then I was a whitewater raft guide in North Carolina. Um, and I decided to go for sustainable energy at um, SUNY ESF in Syracuse. And honestly, Kate, after, after some trivia and a bet with my friend, I ended up getting myself tied up into going to India with them. And um, Shamita and uh, Shamita Bhattacharya and Anish Kirtani are great friends who um, encouraged me to try something that I was afraid of doing. And I, I joined um, a program, it's called the National Highways Mission um, for the Department of Transportation of India, essentially. And what they were doing, they were trying to find how to carbon sequester on their federal land. And you technically own the size of all your federal highways. So they're trying to figure out how much carbon they could sequester and how literally to do it by making a green corridor around all their federal highways. Hmm. And um, Anuj Sharma and Induja Rai um, were my bosses and they are incredible people. I did a little bit of work and then you know, visa and you had to come home. And so I came home to Grand Rapids and um, I never looked back. Nice. And shifting a little bit to kind of the moment we're in right now, we're in the middle of this pandemic. Have you noticed that the COVID crisis has changed or slowed down progress on these projects or you know, do you think it's changed how people are thinking about decarbonizing buildings or changing our buildings? Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I think it's really changing the way that we're perceiving um, use of space and land use management, right? Um, I mean, like, what the heck do we need parking lots for right now, right? Right, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, if I don't have to live here because of work, because I've clearly been able to do my work successfully elsewhere, where would I rather live, mm -hmm. right? And I think, I think, honestly, it's a great thing. I think it's a great thing that we're rethinking the structures in which we operate, because sometimes we think that we have to fit into that which already exists, 
and we forgot that we created this in the first place. And so we can create this to fit us in our new world and the world that we want to create as well. So when it comes to like, how are we gonna move people in multimobility, right? Or uh, how do I attract people to my city or how do I attract people to my company? You know, if, how can I rethink the way to use land and the way to reuse space? Um, I'm really excited. I'm really excited to see what's gonna come in the future. Yeah. When I think about how we're in this, you know, this recession to this economic crisis too, and how we can really be putting, you know, creating programs. If we have really effective leadership that's thinking about climate change and um, good jobs, we can be putting people to work, really improving the buildings and bringing in energy efficiency um, and do all of this together. Um, you know, start, started things moving in, in the right direction even more. Absolutely. Um, we're, we're running out of time to do it right. So let's yeah. figure out what to do. Yeah. And kind of on that note, what are the best ways for people to get involved and take more action in, you know, in greening the buildings they live in and, and work in or in, involved in your work? Uh, that's a good question, Kate. Um, well, first, don't underestimate um, the, the green team approach, right? Like um, your supply chain management and your waste stream, or your recycling or composting? Um, what's your transportation plans? Have you gotten your LED light bulbs yet? Because that, that boots on the ground stuff really does do great work. Um, and some, sometimes that's your low-hanging fruit, and sometimes that's a big reach for some folks, and that's a great place to start. Um, definitely do that um, but if we're talking like like development look right um, honestly get your portfolio and energy audit you're always going to be able to find customized things that your facilities folks were not even looking at um, and get set up with a, a green revolving fund I'm, I'm sure you've heard of these Kate and and uh, yeah. these the, the idea for the folks on the call um, is that you invest in energy efficiency and you scrape that those energy efficiencies that you would have been spending in utilities, but no longer or more, let that pile up and invest in the next energy efficiency thing. And what you're doing, you're creating a revolving fund that doesn't tap into your other capital. And it's a great way for facilities folks or for folks who have to handle competing, um, how would I say, uh, priorities on a budget to be able to achieve these things without um, disrupting the rest of the flow of the organization. Um, Having a retrofit always will help you. And there's financing available, Michigan Saves, Pace. Um, studies have shown that tenants are willing to pay a premium on a green building because it's net benefit for them, right? Mm -hmm. And honestly, it's a net benefit for you from a net zero, excuse me, from a NPV, a net present value perspective. It's $11 cheaper per square foot to have a green building than a standard quo. And you have to make sure that you're enabling the right numbers to, to see this, right? Because if, if you're translating hands, that's usually where things go away. When you are a developer, but you hand it over to a manager and hand it over to a tenant, even though it is cheaper and it's better to have a green building, sometimes the passing of the baton creates confusion in that. So I guess also make sure that you have a strong charrette when you're looking at your green building, because how would I say? Um, 
Because green buildings are no longer novel, right, Kate? They, they're quickly becoming standard quo and they're, they're out-competing consistently standard quo buildings. Um, I mean, just locally here, Bazani is creating green buildings um, without any philanthropy dollars, their market rate, um, people want them. And so we're reaching, a, what do you call it, the tipping point? Yeah, we're mm -hmm. reaching the tipping point. We're reaching the tipping point where net zero carbon buildings are no longer the luxury, they're the demanded. And the market is gonna change that naturally, but what's gonna accelerate it is regulation. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the policies that, what are the best policies to help us get there, to help us move faster to green buildings and right. zero, zero buildings? Yeah, the zero net carbon buildings. Yeah. Um, it's convenient that you say that because the that's the point of the um, zero. Oh, now you got me stumbling. Um, <laughs> so many zeros everywhere, right? The, the, the zero cities project. Yeah. The, the zero okay, cities but it's not just project. me. <laughs> no, I, I do that all the time too. Um, it's It can get messy sometimes. Um, but the zero cities project is meant to create these policies, right? And actually we're in the year where we start eliciting feedback. Um, so the, it's actually gonna be launched at the Michigan Energy Summit, um, if everything works out well, to elicit feedback on what policies from the commercial perspective will work for folks. Um, examples that have worked across the country because Grand Rapids is still figuring out what works for Grand Rapids. Across the country are good density clauses um, like a carrot and stick, you can have a stick from like the taxing perspective, but a carrot on that, you know, you can sell the air above your building for a premium rate if you invest in these sorts of energy efficiencies ahead of time, right? Um, you can create just how I was talking about passing the baton, right? At the baton, that is what um, you call like a, a life mark, right? And you can have standards for what you want them to be at a life mark. The energy codes wise, you can't go above Michigan energy codes. Michigan as a state has to adopt better energy codes. And the cities are always showing the state or the nation what is possible. Cities are leading the way in that matter all the time. And so if you can't go above energy codes, you can make your own carbon codes. And that's what a lot of cities around the country are doing right now. So mm -hmm. I think this might be something you're seeing in the future as uh, people are trying to get there to this zero net carbon future at an accelerated rate. Great. Thank you. Um, any last words that anything we didn't cover that you want to make sure to, to mention? Or did we cover everything? Oh, we covered a lot. And I'm sure, Kate, you and I can still keep talking. Um, you know, no, I don't think I have anything to say. Okay. It's, it's all connected. And you can have your cake and eat it too. Just, if you can't think you can, you're not thinking creatively enough. So let's all get together in a room and have a conversation and see what happens. I love it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Kate, for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Speaking of Resilience podcast. You can find more episodes of the Speaking of Resilience podcast on our website, groundworkcenter.org slash podcast and on all major podcast platforms. 
If you appreciate this content and want more of it, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast wherever you listen in. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. This helps other listeners find the Speaking of Resilience podcast. Like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Groundwork Center and at Michigan Climate Action Network. Speaking of Resilience is created by the Groundwork Center for Resilient Communities and the Michigan Climate Action Network. This episode was produced by Miriam Owsley and Jeff Smith, hosted by Kate Madigan.